0: apologizing because I promised last time that I would not go that long the next time and turns out I lied because when I ran through this it definitely was still a little bit longer than I'd wanted but there's so much in this chapter that I just couldn't justify taking any of it out so um, hopefully it will be worth it Um, so let's go ahead and we're gonna jump into the text today is going to be a lot of fun because we are going to see exactly what it looks like to take all this theological knowledge that Paul has just been giving the Colossian church And let it see and see how it can change our day to day lives. Um, I think a lot of times we have trouble seeing the connection between theology and how we live, but Paul does a really amazing and clear job of walking the Colossian church through this and seeing how it's all connected. So we're gonna start in chapter three, verses one through four. These verses are considered kind of a transitional section in the letter. Um, Up to this point, like we've said, Paul has been laying a theological foundation, um, but right now he's about to shift a little bit. He's going to shift into how they should live as a result of that theological foundation. So go ahead and follow along as I read um, verses 1 through 4 in chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So you'll notice right away he starts this section with if-then-you. Okay? The if-then is a clue that he is linking what he is about to say with something that he has already said before. Um, and then the you is kind of a clue that he is shifting focus from these theological truths to the people that he is writing to, okay? So we've already talked about how he's been laying a rich theological foundation. Well, one of the things that he's been talking about is how there are two kingdoms, okay? He's talked about how there is an earthly kingdom that they were once a part of, but now they are a part of this new heavenly kingdom. We saw back in chapter 1, Verse 13, um, how it says that Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So Paul is introducing this theological truth to us that this was no longer their true home. They're now part of a greater spiritual kingdom. Um, Now, a lot of us know this. We know this in our minds. We know this is true. We know, okay, I'm supposed to be in the world and not of it. This is not my home. This is temporary. I'm to live as an alien here. We know that truth, but sometimes it's hard to connect. Well, what does that mean for today? How does that mean that I live my life today? What does this mean when I'm interacting with my boss or my husband or my children or my friends? Like, how does this change the way that I live? Um, It's very easy to forget this truth in our daily life. And so Paul, knowing that that's true for all of us, he's going to go into a lot of detail on what this looks like, okay? And he starts it in this transitional section by giving kind of a broad encompassing picture of what it looks like in their lives. He starts in verses 1 and 2. And he tells them that because of this truth, this truth that they are raised with Christ, that they should seek the things that are above and set their minds on things above, not on things on earth. Now, different translations, when you kind of look at the same verse in different um, translations of the Bible, there's a variety of words that they use to try to capture the original meaning. You're going to see things like seek or look for, or set your hearts on, or focus on, or think about, or set your minds on. Um, And that's because it's hard to translate the full meaning behind this original word. Um, According to Douglas Moo, he kind of says about the original word here that it refers not to a purely mental or intellectual process, but to a more fundamental orientation of the will. So in other words, Paul is telling them here that now that they're members of this new kingdom, they need to have their hearts, their minds, and their focus, what they seek and pursue, what their will is fundamentally oriented around should be this new kingdom and not the earthly kingdom. I was trying to kind of think of an example the way that I kind of tend to think of this. Um, There's there's a movie that I saw, and I'm not going to say the name of it because I haven't seen it in a really long time. And then when I looked it up to make sure that this is an appropriate movie, it turns out it's super inappropriate, so I don't want to be judged for it. But... There is a movie that I saw, I'm not endorsing it, where there's two undercover cops. And they're kind of younger, so they can still kind of pass for high school students. So they go back, and they have, they're undercover in this high school trying to <laughs> – you guys know the movie. <laughs> and so they're trying to kind of find out who's selling drugs to these students or something like that. Um, And so one of the undercover cops, he gets really wrapped up in this false identity. He starts to kind of really get into this. Because I think his first time around in high school, maybe he was kind of nerdy. The second time back as as an undercover cop, he's actually kind of cool, and he's making a lot of friends, and he actually kind of meets a girl that he starts dating, which is kind of weird. And then he even starts, I think, like applying to colleges. And so you just see this picture of this kind of like, he's not living as his true self. He's living as though he, this this world, this fake world for him, is his true home, but his like friend obviously has to pull him back to reality. That like no, for, don't forget, like you're actually this person over here. You're an undercover cop. You're not a high school student. And so that was just such a good picture for me to think about. I think we do the same thing as believers. We are physically in the world and so it's easy to forget our true identity is not here our true identity is in heaven and it's as in God's kingdom and so when we are surrounded by the promises of the world the things that the world lures us with and offers us with it's easy to kind of get wrapped up and think that this is our home and our will becomes fundamentally oriented around the things of the world and not the things of heaven so that just kind of I thought that that was a good example again if you know what movie I'm talking about don't judge me (laughs) Um, all right, so we just saw there was this transitional section where Paul is shifting his focus, okay? He's shifting the focus to tell them how to live. He's telling them, seek things of this new kingdom. But that's still kind of vague, okay? We can know that truth. I can know I'm supposed to seek things um, like of heaven. But what does that mean? Again, like, I still need more. I need more to let this see how I should be living my everyday life. So as the chapter progresses, Paul is going to get a little bit more practical, Um, So he's going to start with showing them a list. He's going to say, okay, do you want to know what this looks like? Well, if you're living in this old kingdom, here's a bunch of things that are going to show up in your life. If you're living in this new kingdom, here's a bunch of things that are going to show up in your life. So he's getting a little bit more practical so that they're able to look at their lives and assess, like, "Which which kingdom am I really a part of? So he's going to start with the old kingdom. He's going to start by showing them these are the things that if you're characterized by you're living in the old kingdom, you need to take these things off, put these things off because this is no longer you, okay? So go ahead and follow along with me. We're going to read in chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, Evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these the wrath of God is coming. In these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away: anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the after the image of its Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, so in this section, Paul gave us two different groupings. He kind of gave two different groupings of um, vices, if you will, that are kind of characterized by the old kingdom, okay? The first one is in verse 5, and in verse 5 we have the grouping of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire covetousness and idolatry which is kind of what paul is saying all this stems from idolatry then in verse eight we have a second grouping with the same number of things he says we have anger wrath malice slander obscene talk and lying now it's important that we know that when we look at this list this is not meant to be an exhaustive list this is not like as long as you're not doing any of these things you're cool that's not kind of what he's doing here Obviously, there are so many other things that we should put off if we are walking in the new kingdom, like take stealing, for example, or murder. Paul doesn't even list these things, but we know that those are very obvious things that would be of the old kingdom. So we need to ask the question, why does Paul list the specific sins that he did when there were so many other ones that might seem more obvious? So we're going to look at a few ways that we're going to answer this question. The first is we're going to take into account the original audience, and then after that, we're going to take into account the timeless principles behind it all that are meant to apply to all of us. Um, Whenever you read scripture, it's really important to always keep in mind that there's two authors and there's two audiences, okay? So first, you have the earthly author, the human who actually wrote the, the words with his own hand, okay? That's the first author. But then second, you have the heavenly author, which is God writing through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit through that author, okay? So you've got the human author and God the author. At the same time, there's two audiences, You've got the original intended audience, which is the person that the human author wrote this to or for. And then you have kind of the overarching all-people-for-all-time audience because this is the inspired word of God. It's meant for all of us, okay? So part of having Bible literacy is learning how to answer the question, what was meant specifically for that original intended audience at that original time? And what is meant for all people for all time? Like the Old Testament laws are a great example for this because the Old Testament laws, they were written for Israel. That was for a specific audience at a specific time. But when I go and read the Old Testament laws, I don't need to then walk away and think that they all apply to me because I'm in a new covenant now, okay? So there are parts of the Bible that we have to learn how to filter out what was meant for them and what was meant for all. Now, this is a really hard question to answer and um, commentators disagree in a lot of areas all the time. And it's really important that we use this kind of principle really carefully because we want to resist the urge to kind of use it as a way to explain away portions of scripture that we don't like or that seem difficult and claim, ah, well, that doesn't apply to me. That must have just been for the original audience. It can be really tempting to do that, and we want to make sure that that is not the way we use this tool. But in this specific passage, we're not using it that way. What we're doing is we're asking what did Paul choose? The, why did Paul choose the specific sins he did for this specific audience? And then from there, we're going to then see the principles behind it to see what applies to everybody. Now, there are commentators who think that Paul was addressing specific sins that the pagan culture in Colossae would have been characterized by. Throughout the New Testament, um, we have kind of different spots where they have, they, they call them the virtue lists and the vice lists, and so this is an example of one of those, where Paul is listing a list of virtues and a list of vices. This isn't the only place in the Bible where we see something like this, and generally, most of the times when there's a virtue list and a vice list, those are considered by most scholars to be meant for all people universally for all time, not for a specific audience. Um, But there are some people who would say, but in this specific instance, he's so narrow in his focus on this vice list that there is reason to believe that maybe he did choose these specifically for that audience. Um, One person said, The degree to which Paul concentrates on interpersonal relationships in his ethical teaching, in verses 8 through 17, suggests that the Colossian Christians may have been failing to live out their common life in Christ as they should have. So he's kind of saying... It seems like, based on all the instructions he's giving them here, that there must have been some problems with their interpersonal relationships. And this is how this is coming out. And so he's identifying the specific sins that maybe the Colossians were falling into because of this. Um, This specific explanation also would help shed some light on why we have verse 11. Because if you remember in the homework, we pointed out, We have this vice list and then a virtue list, but right in the middle we have kind of this random verse that points out there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, slave nor free, et cetera. And it seems a little bit out of place. But if you notice that list, that statement pointing out there's no longer these divisions, there's no longer these social divisions that you're used to where you can look at yourself as better than another person, well that's entirely like how they're treating each other. And so it makes sense if the sins that they were struggling with kind of stemmed out of those interpersonal relationships. There's a good chance that they were not treating different social groups or social classes of people in a godly way. Um, They may have been clinging to the divisions that existed in the culture around them and then treating each other like they were still wearing their old earthly nature. And that may have been why Paul chose the specific sins he did on his list of what to put off. So that's kind of how looking at the original audience could shed some light on why he chose these sins but looking at the original audience does not mean that we are off the hook. Now that we've looked at what was possibly the reason for this audience to have these instructions, now it's time for us to look, okay, well, what is meant for us? What is intended for all people for all time? Because when we look at this list, we may or may not struggle with the same things. There's some of us in here that we might say, yeah, I really do struggle with some sexual immorality and impurity. But there's some of us in here are like, ah, that's not really my struggle. And so if that's not your struggle, you might look at this list and think, oh, I'm good, I don't do any of these things. Or, I'm good, I'm not talking maliciously about people, I'm pretty nice. You know, so we can look at this and think we're good, think we have a past. But the thing is, even though our outward manifestations of sin changes from person to person and from time period to time period human nature never changes okay and so the way that we can determine what truths are meant for that second wider audience the all people for all time is to ask what is about the heart behind the sins on these lists? we've kind of worded it in past studies as what is the sin beneath the sin and lucky for us Paul walks us through that in verse 5. He actually has a very clear um, methodology with these sins in verse 5. If you'll look at it with me, you'll notice he starts with very external outward sins by just saying things like sexual immorality but as the list goes on it's like he's peeling back layers to get deeper and deeper to the root underneath it because from there he goes a little bit further into passion which is kind of what probably is driving that sexual immorality then he peels it back a little bit further and goes deeper into their hearts and talks about covetousness now covetousness (laughs) means an inappropriate desire for more now in this case that he was referring to an inappropriate desire for more like in the sexual sin area But we know that covetousness throughout the whole Bible can mean a lot of things. It's the inappropriate desire for more of anything, okay? So now he's getting to a heart-like posture that can produce a lot of different external sins. And then he takes it one step further and says, and all of this stems from idolatry, okay? Now, we know that idolatry comes in many, many forms, and it looks different for all of us. That's the underlying sin beneath the sin when he's talking about sexual immorality in this little grouping of sins that all seems very sexual in nature. So, yes, we're on the hook for this whole list. It's not just meant for them. It's meant for us, too. But we are on the hook for so much more, okay? Because when we look at the principles that drive this list, we are to, like, say, okay, well, not only do I need to put off sexual sin, I need to ask, what is idolatry producing in my life? How is this manifesting in my life? Because for me, idolatry might be bringing out something completely different than it was for the Colossians. Okay. What about the second vice list in verse 8? This one focuses a lot on how they're treating one another. Um, Paul seems particularly concerned with how they spoke to each other here. There was likely a problem with the Christians of Colossae speaking to each other with really critical and abusive speech. um, And that would have been a problem because we know from elsewhere in Scripture that out of our mouths, like out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth speaks, okay? So if they're having anger and slander and obscene talk, that's revealing what's truly in their hearts. So Paul's list applies to us, but we might not let our um, judgment of other people come out in the same way. Some of us might just be silently judging other people or being critical in our minds or maybe we're just um, choosing to not to exclude somebody without saying anybody or just not wanting to invite somebody. It all comes from that same underlying heart motive of not treating people the way that God would want us to treat people in our personal relationships. So Paul's list here applies to us, but we are to take it further and ask how do I treat those around me? And in light of verse 11, we should ask, how do I treat those who are different than me? Those who I maybe don't naturally get along with, who I maybe kind of consider um, not my natural circle or group of friends. Okay, so we're to take the list in verse 8 and remind ourselves to put off any actions that are unloving to those around me. Think back to the two kingdoms that we talked about already in the beginning. So our earthly kingdom, the earthly kingdom that we were once a part of, tells us a lot of things. And some of those things are that we should seek our personal pleasure and satisfaction. Like what you want, like nothing should get in your way. Well, do you see how his first list of these sexual sins could be a direct product of that lie? Our earthly kingdom also tells us that power and control over other people, like we should be, um, you know, making like kind of... The American Dream. I mean, it's kind of like having power, having dominion, and all these different areas, and it's kind of promising things that the earth can't really deliver through that. Do you see how that could produce um, the second list in verse eight of kind of seeing each other as maybe obstacles in a way and people to um, not be loving towards? So yes, this list is not exhaustive, but we we, our list of what to put off is not limited to these twelve things. But we're to look at our hearts and ask, what is idolatry producing in me? We're to look at our relationships and ask, how am I treating others? And then we're to ask, what of my actions are a product of the lies of this earthly kingdom that I'm still living in? And that is the list that we are supposed to put off, okay? Like, we tend to be afraid of asking this question, what is meant for the original audience and what is meant for all people? Because we wrongly think that that means we're excusing ourselves from some of the commands of scripture. But I hope that you'll see that's not. if you're doing it the right way, it's actually kind of making it more illuminating to like how much more encompassing some of these commands really are. It kind of puts you on the hook for more in a way. Um, Okay, so that brings us now to the positive list. That was kind of the negative, that was the vice list, the things that, how do we identify how we're living in the earthly kingdom? How do we then identify when we are living in that heavenly kingdom? Um, So we are going to go ahead and read verses 12 through 17 and see what Paul says about that. Put on then, as God's chosen chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. What a beautiful list. I mean, what what if we all looked like that? That would be amazing. So um, now we've mentioned before that these virtue and vice lists that we see throughout the Old Testament, um, like they are common. And that vice list, we kind of talked about how that could have been prompted by specific sins of the Colossian church. Now with this virtue list, on the other hand, most commentators kind of just feel like this is so similar to all the other virtue lists. This is probably more of just a general all-encompassing, like what every Christian should probably should look like it wasn't necessarily prompted by anything specific with the colossian church and it makes sense because these are all qualities that are true of christ and paul says elsewhere in other epistles that we are to put on christ and so in other words we are to put on the virtues that christ modeled and that christ is characterized by um, there's also a particular emphasis here on virtues that promote harmony in relationships in the community because once again it seems like that was maybe an issue for them Um, We kind of pick up on that a little bit because in the middle of this section of all the things they are to put on, Paul reminds them in verse 15 of this theological truth that they are one body, okay? In the old earthly kingdom, that was not necessarily true. It was kind of, you know, you are living for yourself. And so it's easy to start viewing other people as other. And often we can start to see other people as obstacles, obstacles to overcome. People can be obstacles to our own happiness, our own success, our own comfort, our own approval, our own advancement in life. Um, And so it's easy when you see people that way and when your life is more about yourself to start treating people like that other list from the earthly kingdom. In this new heavenly kingdom, though, he's reminding them, Christians are all members of one body. We're no longer to see each other as other. We are all working in harmony as one body, the body of Christ. And so because of this, The way that we treat each other says a lot about the health of our body of the body of Christ okay like you wouldn't just go around punching yourself in the arm all the time like that just wouldn't make sense because it affects the whole body and in the same way if you're choosing people in the body of Christ to not treat in a loving way you're hurting the whole body and so that's something that Paul is pointing out to them by reminding them of this truth because it seems like maybe they were falling into that now let's look at a couple of these things that we're just going to point out in this verse. There's so many. I wish we could just like camp out here because these are so beautiful and so um, just um, important. Um, but just for the sake of getting kind of the bigger picture, we're kind of, kind of, we're kind of zooming over it here. But there are two things I want to point out. Um, the first one is the word meekness um, in verse 12. Meekness is one of those words that we don't tend to use in our everyday language. So it's hard for us to truly understand what the idea behind this is. It's also sometimes translated gentleness. Um, So if you look at the original original word that was in the original text, the standard Greek lexicon defines that word as the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance, okay? So this idea of meekness, what it's saying, it's Because, I, you know, you always see those whole, like, um, I think we had a picture in our bathroom growing up with, like, a little mouse, and it said something about meekness. And so that's kind of the picture I have. But it's not about making yourself, like, um, weak or small. It's more of just saying, like, okay, I'm not really that worried about how important I am. Like, it's not about me. Okay? That's kind of the, the idea behind meekness. It's not being too concerned with your own self-importance. Um, we see a lot throughout the Bible that we're to consider others as more important as ourselves. So while the old self in the old kingdom cared about power and authority and becoming great, the new self doesn't really care about that. That's not what our life is about. The new self is humble and kind to others. Um, And so that's kind of just a a good thing to remember. I think that that sometimes we just lose the essence of that word. Another thing I want to point out is verse 13 where it says, Bearing with one another. Um, This kind of carries the idea behind it of putting up with with each other. Because remember, we've seen in verse 11, him pointing out all these different social classes and distinctions and ways that people saw themselves as different from each other. And now for the first time, they're not going to be used to having like, a community with all of these kinds of people together and there's going to be tensions and frictions and they're not going to naturally just gel with each other, okay? There's going to be maybe some conflict here and there. And so he kind of starts by saying, bear with one another, like put up with each other. This is, you know, like you're having different people around you for the first time, maybe, maybe ever. Um, But then he doesn't stop there. We don't just bear with one another. He goes on and says things like, you are to forgive each other. You are to love one another, live in harmony. Um, But it has to start somewhere, right? And so he's kind of showing them, hey, you are used to being so divided by class and social standing and race and all these different things. Those divisions aren't there anymore. You have to work hard to learn how to become one body, okay? And the way that you're treating each other is going to be a reflection of whether or not you're living in this heavenly kingdom or not. Um, This is a radically different picture of life and community than they were used to, okay? Um, All right. So that's kind of our virtue list. Now, again, we've talked about how he gets more practical as he goes, okay? So we started with this general reminder, hey, seek the things above. He gets more specific and says, what does that look like? Well, here's what you're going to look like when you're not seeking the things above. Here's what you're going to look like when you are seeking the things above. And now Paul's going to take it even a step further, and he's going to show them exactly what their primary relationships look like at home if they've put on these qualities, okay? So he's going to get even more detailed and even more practical. Um, he's kind of giving us this really complete picture of how theology first like, forms the way we see God, then it forms the way we see ourselves, and then it changes how we relate to one another, okay? So it's kind of a long process, and he's walking us through it step by step. Um, it's super practical and super helpful. So let's take a look at our last section. We're going to read chapter 3, verses 18 through four, one. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward." You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. All right, we're saving the easy part to the end, right? (laughs) Okay, I'm guessing that this is the part that most of you guys are just dying inside over, and you probably have a ton of questions and a ton of opinions about it, because this is a really tough passage for a lot of reasons, and so we're going to do our best to address some of these things that we probably have issues with with this passage, okay? Um, So we're going to see Paul addresses three relationships here, right? First, he addresses the husband and wife relationship, and he starts off with the words, wives submit to your husbands. Now I'm guessing in this room we are probably all over the map in how we feel about that statement. I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of women in the church, and I think that it's just you know it's really been kind of beautiful how we have women who are all over the place on this, and we want Providence Road to be a safe place where we can come and process these hard things, and it's okay if we don't all agree. So I know there's some people in here that probably really like the idea of male headship and and the wife submitting to her husband. They don't have you, some of you guys don't have a problem with that, and it doesn't cause you any pause or any struggle. I know there's probably some people in this room who are maybe even on the verge of a crisis of faith because of these kind of verses like this, okay, and then we're probably everywhere in between those two extremes, okay, and that's okay because these are hard verses. A lot of times we have them misrepresented to us, and so it's hard to kind of sort through what does it really mean, Um, and until you know what it means, it's hard to know like how you really feel about it, So we are going to circle back around to this, don't worry. So we start with the husband-and-wife relationship, and then Paul moves on to the parent-child relationship. And that's kind of one that we tend to track well with. We don't have a lot of issues with this one. Um, And then he moves on to the master-slave relationship. Now, this is the most difficult part of this passage for a lot of people because slavery is addressed, but it's not condemned. And so we look at this, and we start—some people look at this, and they start to worry, well, gosh, why isn't Paul condemning slavery here? Is the Bible pro-slavery? And a lot, there's been a lot of criticism that what is the Bible pro-slavery? So what is going on here? Why did Paul not outright condemn slavery? So we kind of look at this passage and we look at kind of our conflicting opinions on each of these things and how they don't necessarily all fit in the same like easy category in our mind and the passage as a whole starts to feel problematic to us. So then what do we do with it? Now because it feels problematic to a lot of people. A lot of times people try to find a way to just explain it away, and they kind of tend to do things like, well, this must have just been meant for that specific audience at that specific time, so it doesn't have to apply anymore. We can throw it out, um, or they kind of say, well, we can't like, pick and choose, and so we obviously know that slavery is wrong, so we're going to throw away that husband and wife thing too and just throw it all out. We did say earlier that part of biblical literacy, Bible literacy, is knowing how to answer the question what was meant for a specific audience at a specific time and what was meant for all people for all time. But we have to be extremely careful, like we said, because this is not an excuse to just simply throw away and dismiss difficult passages of scripture that we don't want to deal with, okay? We need to handle difficult texts with a lot more care and a lot more respect than that. So what we're going to do now is we're going to try to give this text the care that it deserves and understand what Paul is really doing here um, and resist the temptation to just simply dismiss it and throw it out, okay? Okay. So the first thing we need to do in order to better understand this passage is to look at the literary form of it. This is going to be really, really revealing to us. Um, Do you remember back in chapter 1 a few weeks ago, we mentioned that there was that hymn about Christ, and we said Paul very well could have taken an existing hymn and changed the words in order to make a point, right? Do you remember that? Well, something similar is for sure happening here. This is something that scholars are pretty much in agreement on. Um, In Greco-Roman culture, there was something that Luther kind of gave the name not I'm not saying that right. But basically, that translates to household tables, okay? This was a common thing that everybody would have been familiar with at that time. They had roots that go back like a long, long time before that. They started with Aristotle. And they were instructions on how households should run. This was a common thing. People would have been familiar with it. They would have recognized it at that time. This idea of these house tables, it started, um, the earliest ones were um, Aristotle. He kind of, in his household tables, he took the household and he divided it into three primary relationships. Can you guess what those three relationships were? They were the master-slave relationship, the husband-wife relationship, and the father-children relationship, okay? So is this sounding familiar? So that's how Aristotle kind of established these house tables. And from there, several philosophers in Greek culture, in Roman culture, even in Jewish culture, created these household tables. And they almost always centered around these three primary relationships. Okay? So they were easy to identify. These were the things that they always were addressing. Okay? Um, even the Jewish culture, I think I mentioned philosophers in the Jewish culture, kind of took them and modified them to fit kind of the Jewish faith um, a little bit. Um, So, uh, all of the household tables that were written um, in all of these cultures, there was always a clear expectation of paternal power over the household. That was just the Greco-Roman culture that was present at that time. So, all of these relationships, all three of them would have been understood as a relationship where the male head of the household was in authority over everybody else. And the purpose of the household tables in this culture was to make sure that that husband, that father, that slave owner um, was going to have instructions to help him to keep control and authority over everybody within his household. That was a high value in the Greco-Roman culture was kind of the household running smoothly, the husband, having, the husband father having that kind of ultimate control ev- over all of it. Okay. Very rarely were the subordinate subordinate members of these relationships addressed in these household codes. Like these household codes didn't typically address the um, wife or the children or the slave. And one of the few occasions that those people were addressed in these household codes, it was still for the purpose of ensuring that the husband had control over them, okay? So you can see how this way in the culture of viewing the home was in tension with what Paul just said in verse 11 about all of us having equality in Christ, all these distinctions not being there anymore, okay? It would have been very easy at that time for a man who was a husband or a father or a slave owner to see his position of authority in the home as a reason to teach the other members of the home harshly or to demand obedience from them. It would have been easy for the other members of the home to then resent him for it and to act in defiance. It would have been easy to live as members of the old earthly kingdom, fighting for power and control in the home, speaking in harshness and anger. And it would have been really confusing for new believers coming out of this culture where this was what was expected of a household to now know, how am I supposed to act in these relationships in my new identity, living as a new creation, a new believer? So here in this passage, Paul is doing something radical. He gives them a new appropriate household table to help them see how their new identity in Christ should change the way that they act in these everyday household relationships. And the first radical thing that he does is he addresses each subordinate member of the household table. He starts by addressing the wife. And so he doesn't just speak to the wife, he speaks to her first. And that's something that we can't overlook because that's something that would have definitely been noticed by the original audience okay and when he speaks to her it's not with the purpose of telling her that to like to ensure her husband's control over her okay when he speaks to each of these members it's always for a different purpose than what the original household tables were about okay Um, we also see him speaking to the children to the slaves in that home and when he does it's not again to ensure that they are under control but it's to empower them to live out their new identity in Christ in these daily relationships that they found themselves in. They were all aware that of this new truth that now all these divisions are gone. I'm supposed to be equally loved and valued. But they still are finding themselves in a society where they're naturally going to be in relationships of authority. And so they're having to figure out how does it, what does this look like? How am I to act in this position that I find myself in? The other radical thing that Paul is doing here is the way that he instructs the one who is in authority, which is the husband, father, slave owner, okay? He's not giving them instructions on how to keep control over their household. He's telling them how to love those in their household. He's telling them how to lay down their life for them, how to treat them with fairness, with dignity, and with value. This would have been completely liberating to the people in that culture, to the wives, to the children, and to the slaves in that household. Okay, so we have to know that we tend to look at this passage through the eyes of our own experiences and our own culture, but to the eyes of the original audience, this was a very beautiful passage that brought a lot of freedom to a lot of people. But you might still be wondering, well, why doesn't Paul just throw out the household tables altogether? Like, why even keep the idea of the head of the household, and why not condemn slavery outright? That would just be so much easier. Um, But it's helpful, I think, to remember Jesus and how Jesus came. The Jewish people expected kind of a warrior on a horse riding in to free them from this oppressive Roman government. They expected a physical deliverance from this group of people that was oppressing them, right? They expected kind of to conquer the Romans. Um, But Jesus didn't do that. It was very unexpected to them. Jesus came not to free them from the oppression of the Romans, but he came to free them from Satan, sin, and death. He freed them from the oppression of sin. So it wasn't what they expected. And here in this passage, Paul doesn't overthrow these existing societal structures. He shows Christians how to live in those existing structures in a way that models Christ. One website pointed out that the purpose of the Bible is to point the way to salvation, not to reform society. Now, yes, obviously society like reforming society is a natural outflow when the gospel takes root and is applied and we're going to see that as we kind of walk through some of this here in a minute Um, but primarily the first step is salvation and so all of the goal is to point people to salvation and as the gospel takes root then reforming society is a natural outflow of that okay so Paul is going to do the work of trying to help people's hearts change and then hopefully as a result of that society will then start to change Uh, so now that we have a better understanding of this passage and what it was like this idea of a house table what paul was doing here let's take a look at the two parts that tend to be difficult for us okay um first we're going to start with slavery i think a lot of us just wish that paul would have said to the slave owner stop having slaves it's wrong (laughs) like that would have been so much easier and i can't i think a lot of us are confused like why didn't paul do that Again, a lot of people have criticized the Bible for being pro-slavery because of this passage and other passages that are similar to it. Um, So I think when we struggle with a passage, it's often helpful to take a step back and ask the question, what does the entirety of Scripture say about this topic, okay? This is a question I want you guys to remember. This is a really good one to have in your tool belt when you're studying the Bible and you come across something that's difficult or confusing or that makes you pause and say, well, this doesn't make sense. It's always good to ask the question, what does the entirety of Scripture have to say about this so that we can make sure we're not drawing the wrong conclusions out of an isolated verse or passage, okay? So we don't have time to do an extensive study, but I'm going to try to give you a bird's-eye view of kind of how the Bible as a whole maybe talks about or views slavery. The first thing that we need to know is that when you look at all of Scripture, it is virtually impossible for slavery to exist if people are living in obedience to all of God's commands, so things like loving others, considering others more important than yourself, um, Jesus came not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve, um, not grappling for power. Things like this. When we're doing that, there's no possible way that slavery can exist, and us still be obedient to the scriptures. Um, when I was reading a Gospel Coalition article, and the way that they put it, they said. Even before the actual institution of slavery is abolished, the work of the gospel abolishes the assumptions and prejudices that make slavery possible. Okay, So that's the first thing we need to know. You can't read the Bible and see any way to be able to have slavery without being in sin because the act of it requires being a disobedient to the commands of Scripture. Now, in addition to this, in the Old Testament, when slavery obviously was just very much a part of the culture— we have to notice that, one, slavery was not a God-ordained thing. God did not say, and you shall have slaves. Like, this was never something that God instructed them to do. But it was a part of the culture around them. It was a part of their culture as well. Um, and so we see that there's a lot of Old Testament laws that kind of try, like put safeguards around slavery to prevent it from coming something even worse, if that makes sense. So we see laws like, um, every seven years, they were required to free all of their slaves. So slavery was never meant to be lifelong. It was never a lifelong thing. Um, it also was never something that was racially motivated. It was usually something that was more stemming from circumstances or economics, like if they needed to pay off a debt. Um, also, there was a law that said if you ever steal a human being and force them into slavery, your punishment is to be put to death. Okay, that's a, that's in Exodus, in the law. So there were a lot of safeguards. to to stop slavery from being the version of slavery that we tend to be most familiar with because it's the version of slavery that we have seen in our history um, not that long ago and so we have to know that that when we when we read about slavery in the bible it definitely was very different maybe than the slavery that we have um, that we are more familiar with and a lot of these laws were to protect slavery from becoming such a terrible like a worse thing i mean it was terrible all to start with but to make it become even so much more terrible and then the last thing that should help us to know where the bible stands on slavery is philemon now philemon is the name of an epistle in the new testament so this is a letter that paul wrote to a person named philemon And Philemon is a slave owner, was a slave owner, and he had a slave named Onesimus. Now Onesimus escaped. He ran away from Philemon, and he was living with Paul or was with Paul for a while. Now Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter, and the letter tells Paul, it gives, um, it tells um, um, Philemon instructions, and he says, um, basically, I want you to take back Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother, okay? So he's saying, no longer, I want you to take back Onesimus, he's no longer your slave, though. He's a brother in Christ. Um, and I'm guessing, I don't know this because I, I didn't have a chance to research it, but I'm guessing that if a slave were to have ran away during that time, there would have been harsh consequences for it. And so it would have been pretty scary for Onesimus to come back, but Paul gives very, very specific instructions that when Philemon takes him back, it's not as a slave, it's as a brother. Um, one man, Gavin Ortland, kind of he said about this. He said, "Paul dissolves the slave master relationship, and erects in its place a brother brother relationship in which the former slave is treated with all the dignity with which the apostle himself would be treated." Okay, so we kind of talked about how first the heart changes and then society begins to change. And I think we see a picture of that here that first Paul doesn't come out just trying to overthrow the existing societal structures. But as the gospel takes root, then there's the doors open for Paul to start to dissolve the things that really should not be there in the first place. Okay, does that make sense? So hopefully, again, we could go into so much more detail on this, but that kind of gives us a bird's eye view and maybe gives us some peace that no— the Bible is not pro-slavery. And just because Paul instructs slaves to obey their masters in this verse, that doesn't mean that he's endorsing slavery. Just the same way that Jesus not overthrowing the Roman government did not endorse the Romans' control over his people, okay? So what do we do then with the, wi- the verse about wives submitting to their husbands? Do we get to do the same thing? Do we get to then say, well then that's the same for wives and husbands, right? Like, it's just an outdated form of society that no longer applies to us. Well, again, we have to give this verse over here the attention that it deserves. So we're gonna step back and we're gonna ask the same question of it. What does the entirety of scripture have to say with this idea of wives submitting to husbands? Um, Now, when we ask that question and we look at all of scripture, we kind of are taken down a very different path than we were with slavery, okay? we are actually given other portions of scripture that talk about it in a lot more detail. And we kind of see even some roots all the way back in the creation account of how the way that man and women were created was a little bit different from each other and the curses that they were given was a little bit different from each other. So we see kind of the roots, we were, they were given the same charge, they were to do the same thing as a team together, but there were also some differences in the way that they're named and the way that um, just different things kind of happen in that creation story. Um, We kind of see different parts of scripture where there is actual theological explanations attached. So so you guys might be familiar with this, um, the idea that your role as a husband or a wife is supposed to reflect or image the relationship between Christ and the church, okay? So it is difficult to justify throwing out portions of scripture that explain how your role as a husband or a wife reflects or images Christ and the church. Do you see the difference here? Okay. Now, we can't claim that this is only the context in this early church, um, because we are given ther- clear theological teaching in other places of Scripture that talk about kind of the purpose for maybe some of the differing roles in a marriage relationship. Um, we can't say the same thing about the master-slave relationship. We see a very different picture whenever we start to look at all of Scripture for that one. So. We can say that, yes, the teaching about slaves and masters was for that specific context, and we are not supposed to take that and justify ever having any form of slavery ever. Um, but we cannot do the same things with the verses on wives and husbands. That's not to say, though, that these ideas of male headship and wives submitting to husbands haven't been abused and distorted, because they have. They have been greatly abused and greatly distorted, um, I wish that we had time to really go into what does it look like for a wife to submit to her husband. But we're not really going to go there because, for one, that's not really the purpose of Paul's text here. Paul's not trying to give them an explanation of why their roles are different or why they're supposed to do the things they do. He's trying, again, he's trying to help protect them from the abuse that could be happening in these relationships and shift their mindset to figure out, am I living for an earthly kingdom or a heavenly one? So this isn't his purpose here, so we're not going to try to twist the scripture into something that it's not meant for in this part of the Bible. Um, but we do see that there's this extreme version that a lot of churches and a lot of people have taken this to, where this this probably looks a little bit like what those original Greco-Roman household tables looked like. We've heard stories and seen it played out, where um, husbands are demanding authority from their wives or submission from their wives, and she is somehow seen as a lesser human being. Okay. And it is sad that there are still people and there are still churches who see women this way. And we are not one of those churches, okay? And I hope that you see that with this household table, Paul is shattering that lie. He is breaking that away, okay? He's trying to get rid of that. Um, On the other hand, there's other churches and people who want to throw out any notion that men and women are different at all in any way. But to do that, that extreme is dangerous because it requires ignoring passages of scripture that are theological in nature, describing how we uniquely reflect the heavenly relationship between Christ and the church. So, in between these two extremes, though, there is a wide variety of differing opinions among churches and individuals who are just truly doing their best to interpret scripture faithfully. Okay, so there's not like it's 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 hard to decide where exactly. Um, you fall in that whole thing because there's, there's this tension, this tension between knowing these distinctions are gone. Like in our list in verse 11, it said there is not you know, slave nor free or Jew nor Greek, but there's other lists that Paul gives these same roles, and he says there's neither male nor female, and so we know that these divisions are gone, but at the same time, we are created to, there's other portions of scripture that talk about how we're created to reflect Christ in unique ways, and so you have to figure out how to walk that tension without going to either of these two dangerous extremes, and I love that we are a church where we can wrestle through it and dialogue about it together. And in case you are wondering where Providence Road stands on this specific issue, where we are on that whole spectrum, I'm going to read a portion of our Statement of Faith just to kind of let you know, because it might be helpful for you. Um, So this is just from our website, just copied and pasted it. Our Statement of Faith says that we believe that God uniquely created Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from his side. Adam and Eve were created, male and female, equally in the image of God and without sin. They were created to serve one another in complementary ways, demonstrating marriage as a type of union between Christ and his church. Okay, So that's just the statement of faith. Um, again, I think that there might be you know times in the future where we can maybe break this apart even more because I know that for some of you guys, this is something you have a lot of questions about. Um, but hopefully that just kind of gives you a picture of kind of where we are at on the spectrum. Um, but I hope that you know, no matter where we all fall in this room, that... We can at least see that Paul's words here speak value into not just women but all people. And these words that he spoke in this portion of scripture would have been seen as very liberating in nature to the original audience. They would have not in any way been seen as oppressive to the original audience. Um, Now, one more thing before we close. Um, We saw earlier that when we asked the question, what's meant specifically for the original audience and what is meant for us, that a lot of the times that typically puts us on the hook for more and not less, okay? So now we might look at this and we may or may not in this room, like you guys may or may not be a wife or a child or a slave or a husband, like those roles, you might not fit into any of those, but whether you do or not, you're not off the hook, okay? The principles behind this list apply to far more than those three relationships because you're always going to be in positions where there's an element of authority. Um, You're always going to be in these relationships in in your day-to-day life, like there's going to be times that maybe you're a student and times that maybe you're a teacher. You might be an employee, you might be a boss, you might be a citizen, or you might be an elected official, okay? We see these relationships all throughout society that they're not going to be identical to the ones that the Colossians had in their day-to-day lives, but we have positions where there's maybe some authority involved um, on one end or another. So we need to look at what Paul instructed the Colossians and then ask the question of ourselves: what would these relationships look like in my life if I am truly living in a, as a member of my heavenly kingdom and not this earthly one? Okay, so let's pray. God, we just covered a lot tonight. And um, I just pray that the things that you want women to walk away from here is what would sink in and dig into each an individual person in here. I pray that, um, that this would be a time that your word is living and active and that you are changing us, transforming us, illuminating things to us, helping us wrestle through. Um, difficult things to a point where we come to new understandings. Um, I pray that we would wrestle faithfully and in a God-honoring way, um, and that you would lead us to a place where we um, are able to trust your heart and trust your words and to become come to a place of just deeper understanding of maybe some of these texts. Lord, I pray that you would show us how in our own lives, each of us individually are maybe keeping on some of the old kingdom qualities um, and help us to take those things off and, um, and just to be able to put on the, king, the new kingdom qualities as we go through our, our day-to-day lives. I pray that you'd be with us as we discuss this with each other. Bless our conversations um, or, um, as we kind of process further, and I pray that your spirit would continue to be moving um, and working as we discuss it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.